Welcome to Mental Health and You. This podcast brings you the best information and advice from across the Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. Every fortnight, we will hear from one of our specialist areas, be it school and parent support, the recovery college, well-being or research. Hi, so today I am with three members of the research team here at NSFT. Um, do you want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Danielle. I'm a research assistant psychologist working in older adults research development. Hello, I'm Sarah. I'm a research assistant psychologist and I've been employed to help with all of the COVID research. And hi, I'm Laura. I'm the trial manager for a current feasibility randomised control trial with young people. And so you've all been successful in getting a place on a clinical psychologist doctorate this year. So firstly, congratulations. Being new to this area this year myself, I didn't realise what was involved in getting on this three-year course, which is a paid placement to become a clinical psychologist. So as you three are off, I wanted to grab you for the Mental Health and You podcast to hear some of your pearls of wisdom before you leave us. Shall we start with how research has played a part? Because that's what you're all currently doing, obviously, in at the NSFT research department. How and why did you end up here? Well, I um, had quite a lot of clinical experience, but I felt like I kind of fell short a bit in the research area. Um, and whilst I'd kind of dipped my toe in research within my clinical roles, doing kind of service evaluation and audit work, I really wanted a more formal research role to kind of really strengthen my skills in that area and be kind of a more rounded applicant for the doctorate. I think I've absolutely loved my time in the research department just as much as I have kind of any of my clinical roles. And I think partly because it kind of lends itself really well to kind of aspects of my personality. So I'm really curious. I think being a researcher is a bit bit like being a detective sometimes and kind of just, you know, I get really excited about discovering things uh, within data. And I've always been really obsessed with Brené Brown. So, um, you know, that idea of kind of being a storyteller and, you know, I love um, qualitative research and kind of being able to give people a space to kind of share experiences and stories and kind of learn from those so um, yeah I've really enjoyed my time here. I mean I suppose this year has been particularly kind of different hasn't it like Sarah like obviously you've actually been doing research into Covid related topics haven't you? Yeah so really kind of looking at the impact of Covid-19 on our service users and our staff within NSFT which has been really really interesting and really kind of lovely to have experience of seeing research translated into kind of um, you know making you know meaningful changes within organizations and that's been really nice. I think the pandemic has certainly in terms of developing research has potentially made it more streamlined. I think it's allowed us to collaborate with a much wider geographical area um, in terms of the fact that kind of remote working and video calling has become the norm these days. Um, But I also think in terms of when we're thinking about how to deliver research, um, it's really highlighted inequalities and the fact of kind of digital exclusion and things like that. And actually kind of really thinking about the fact that the people we're trying to reach out to potentially haven't got access to online platforms and aren't Mm -hmm. privileged in those areas. And we really need to kind of be thinking about that, thinking about our own privileges and how that can also impact on people. A really good point. And so when we think about research, we think also about like implementation of research. And Sarah, I know like you've sort of been kind of doing something a little bit on the sidelines, like which has 
be coming implemented, which is quite exciting. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So for the last year or so, in my spare time, I've been doing a bit of work looking at the impact of class, um, particularly people that come from a working class background um, pursuing a career in clinical psychology. We know that there's a big problem with the diversity of the profession and we know that it can feel quite inaccessible for people that aren't from that type of background. So we did like a thematic analysis of some webinars that were run for kind of um, aspiring clinical psychologists from working class backgrounds and we kind of put those themes into a position statement on the impact of class within clinical psychology and we use we use the themes to kind of come up with some recommendations for organisations and universities to think about in terms of their kind of admission criteria and in, in making it feel more accessible and kind of, yeah, widening access for people from working class backgrounds. And yeah, you know, it's quite exciting because, you know, I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think someone said that usually kind of research takes around 20 years to be implemented into kind of practice. And what's been really nice is, I guess, um, you know, universities have already started looking at the position statement and they're already thinking about how they can implement the recommendations to their um, admissions processes. Um, so, yeah, it's been a really nice piece of work to be involved in. That's amazing. What what got you interested in, in getting involved with that? Yeah, so I come from a working class background myself. And I think, yeah, kind of being faced with some of the barriers of being someone that comes from a bit, bit of a non-traditional background I think that definitely led to an interest in increasing increasing access for, for the for the people that come after me yeah it's, it's just something that I'm quite interested in and I suppose so I mean what are the changes that you're hoping are gonna happen yeah so I think a lot of a lot of universities are thinking about implementing uh, contextual admissions policies and thinking about kind of um, you know the criteria that they use to shortlist applicants for interviews onto the doctorate. Laura and Danielle, how like have you felt like there have been barriers to getting onto you know to getting to this point? Has it been a smooth ride? No, I don't think anybody would <laughs> say yeah it was a really easy smooth ride getting on to the doctorate. I think there are definitely barriers I think for me one of the things is like it's just so hugely competitive like you mentioned at the beginning Claire like it is a funded doctorate and in terms of uh, the appeal of that that's pretty wide-ranging because actually lots of people aren't in a financial position to, to do a doctorate where that that isn't a component so it is hugely hugely um, competitive and I think I come from a bit of a a slightly different background so I wasn't necessarily as a child it's a, it, being a clinical psychologist isn't everything I've always ever wanted to do I kind of came quite late to the game um, so I'm a qualified uh, social worker been practicing as a social worker for quite a long time and for me it was experiencing that there is a I found that there was a glass ceiling um, for social work and mental health if you didn't want to go into management but wanted to develop clinically actually that the the really limited opportunities for that so thinking about how I could develop that and uh, a different supervisor of old said the reality is you just have to train out you have to kind of diversify what you do professionally so I didn't kind of it's been a slightly shorter journey for me but a slightly more 
life-altering journey because I just didn't necessarily kind of put it in the plan in terms of where I would be and having it kind of a, achieved a certain level within my career and then having to go back to being a trainee and and retraining and redeveloping within that but I think equally that brings lots of different experiences I know the three of us were definitely doing some interview prep together and that kind of uh comparison bit came out in terms of kind of like oh my word I can't do the bits that like Sarah and Danielle do really easily and I'm like that's just not what I'm familiar with uh because I'm familiar with other things and having to kind of try really hard not to to compare myself not to kind of dismiss my experiences because they were potentially slightly different to other people's experiences I think like Sarah mentioned like there is a huge uh, diversity problem within clinical psychology and actually feeling that I didn't necessarily fit that kind of mold it therefore felt kind of more far-fetched the idea that I might actually get on because I was coming at it from such a different angle but then I think there was a huge thing about just having like why am me and there was a for me in the application process there was a bit of a light bulb moment in terms of being well the only person I can be at these interviews is me (laughs) and if they don't like me well we're not going to get on for the next three years so (laughs) I don't really want to get onto somewhere where actually they don't like what I bring because that that's just not going to work and that's going to be really clunky and uncomfortable for everybody which kind of gave me a little bit of peace with the process that actually I could only be me and I could only bring me to the whole application process and clearly somebody liked it so yeah and Danielle um I'd say there was definitely barriers within my career so like Sarah I come from a working class background and actually I'm the only person in my extended family to have ever gone to university so that brought around barriers in terms of financial help while I was at university so I took a gap year before I um, went onto the course simply to work and earn money in order to be able to save and support myself and when I arrived at uni everybody was really really confused when I told them I'd been on a gap year and they asked me where I'd gone traveling and I said to my local British home stores (laughs) where I was working at the time and so imposter syndrome has probably been a huge a huge thing for me in terms of actually when I'm kind of you know applying for these assistant psychologist posts with people with masters and things like that and I again I couldn't really afford to do a master's and I also felt that I I wasn't what sort of masters I wanted to do at that point I wasn't where my passion lied I didn't have any experience in for example child psychology so how would I know that that was the masters that I wanted to do and so for me kind of looking at the price of masters for what I'm passionate about really really didn't kind of fit fit in with my values Um, and so I decided to not go down the master's route and go straight into work I think it took me around two years working as a support worker before I got my first assistant psychologist post. I know, for example, there are honorary assistant psychologist posts, uh, which are voluntary, which are unpaid. And that sometimes is a bit of a step into psychology for those with the privileged background that are able to kind of work. Mm. There's a lot of lots of contention around the idea of unpaid assistant psychologist posts. Instead of going down the academic route, I chose to go down the work experience route. Um, I worked for two years as a support worker, applying for every assistant psychologist post I could find. And yeah, so it took me two years to be able to get a psychologist post because even, even that level is very, very competitive. And yeah, even then with kind of work experience and clinical experience and research experience, it still took me four years to 
to get a place on the doctorate. Wow. And Laura, you're talking about comparison there. And I know that you've done a TEDx talk about that. So obviously, comparison has been a sort of a bit of a theme. Like, can you can you talk us through why you chose that as your TEDx talk? Hmm. For me, the comparison is such a big bit of life. And I, as I talk about kind of in the TEDx talk, actually, it starts like from birth in terms of how we're talked about, in terms of kind of how our milestones are compared with one another. I think it's really heavily entrenched in our society, this idea that actually your performance is measured against other people's, that you can't just be you, that actually this is where you sit on a percentile in comparison to other people. And I think it's a really destructive culture that kind of robs people of their individuality. It robs people of confidence because actually they're thinking that they're, they don't measure up when they're, they're being compared to somebody else. But I think also for me, it's definitely something I have fallen foul of throughout my life. Even when other people are like, no, you're not being compared. I'm like, yes, I am. I secretly <laughs> know that I am. <laughs> and if you're not doing it, I'm doing it. <laughs> So for me, it's had to be something that I I consciously don't do or acknowledge that I am doing and needing to step away from. But I also think it is something that is really rife in the kind of the application process in terms of comparison of experiences, comparison of qualifications, comparison of how many years it takes you to get on, which courses you choose how many AP roles you have, like the, the, like the opportunities for comparison are rife and there are definitely kind of subcultures within that that really encourage that. And I've had to be very careful in terms of how I manage my contact with other people applying because actually it becomes overwhelming and you end up feeling like you're not, or I ended up feeling like I, there's no way I could do this. I would never be good enough because actually I didn't kind of measure up to the, these other people. So yeah, I think it's something that kind of rules in every area of life. And I think it's also something that makes me think about how I take on my training. Like I've got quite a small cohort and, and thinking about how um, our experiences are all going to be really, really different and that that's OK. And that's actually a really good thing because actually we lack diversity within this field. So, um, yeah, I think I picked a comparison because it's something that I think has the impact of really alter people's lives and once you notice it and you can kind of step away from it there's a huge amount of freedom that's in it and actually that sense of kind of walking your own journey and walking your own path and that you can't really compare it to anybody else's because we've all had different experiences we all come from different journeys and therefore there's no way I can compare myself to anybody else. How do you think your early life has influenced your career choice and how will it affect your clinical work I think definitely having experience of accessing services myself growing up has definitely shaped kind of my interest in mental health and and who I am as a practitioner and you know my values as a practitioner of kind of you know working with people and not on them or to them and kind of you know that non-expert position I think it's massively kind of shaped yeah who I am my kind of working class background I think that's led me to kind of strive for better and have a really good work kind of ethic yeah guys what do you think I think definitely my kind of professional experience as a social worker will be one of the things that really impacts the type of practitioner I am so social work is naturally very systemic and thinking about kind of additional factors that might be impacting an individual's presentation and I think somebody once said to me that kind of once you switch on that systemic lens you can't really ever switch it off 
And I think that's going to have a huge bearing in terms of kind of how I work alongside others. Um, can you give a bit of an example of that, Laura? Because I think some people might not know what you mean by systemic. Can you can you explain mm. a bit more? Yeah, so I think so. Systemic is thinking about relationships and context and environment and how all of those things might impact uh, an individual. So kind of on a kind of micro level, you might be thinking about that person's family, how those kind of family experiences have led to a presentation very much with kind of in a systemic lens. You might be thinking about intervening with parents and carers rather than necessarily directly with a young person. You tell my backgrounds, kids and families kind of on a more uh, meso level. You might be thinking about kind of academia and the things that are kind of happening around that young person, friendship groups and all of those things. But then kind of on that macro scale, you'll be thinking about things like structural inequality, how all of those may then be influencing the presentation that you see of somebody within a clinical setting, that it's not as straightforward as this is a, as a, as a, a diagnosable mental health difficulty, because actually this, this experience happens within the context of life. And actually only by thinking about how we intervene in all of those levels or make sense of all of those levels, can we actually help somebody on an individual level and yeah I, I find it really hard to switch that off now <laughs> and that's naturally where my brain goes uh, so I think that's going to have a huge bearing as well and I think equally definitely for me as I've grown and developed and I've kind of contextualized my own experiences and my own life within that kind of much more systemic lens has my own life and journey made sense so I think specifically thinking around a kind of formulation approach and definitely be using those bits as well I don't think I will ever lose those bits so I feel like same with Sarah really that actually kind of my working class background is really really going to help me have an awareness of the privileged position that that I'm going into I think remembering kind of the barriers that people face in in day-to-day life and also actually having an awareness of my own journey and kind of how I got to where I am today Um, the support that I've been given and um, one of my favorite quotes is from a US writer called Maya Angelou and it was very much people forget what you did people forget what you said but people forget how you made them feel Mm. I feel that that really kind of chimes with me that actually it's not necessarily knowing all of the answers kind of being the perfect person it's actually just about kind of making people feel supported competent and you know, an expert in their own life and their own experiences and kind of their own judgments. And so, you know, that that's kind of helped me get to where I am today, you know, despite any barriers I've faced, actually, I've had privileges in my life that have kind of got me to this place. And I really need to kind of remember that, but also kind of, you know, raise the awareness of other people with that as well, that other people have those same privileges, even when it feels like what they're facing feels impossible at the time. It's definitely, I, I think I've definitely kind of learned through my experiences to look at things with an intersectional lens, um, kind of recognising that we all have aspects of our identity that might be more privileged or kind of more disadvantaged um, and how kind of all of those things can interact to create, um, yeah, disadvantage mm. within within the process and, and within our lives. Yeah, and I really feel that, like Laura was talking around comparison, actually, that that's played massively in my journey as well. So as I mentioned, this is it took me four years to get a place on the doctorate. And actually, there are people that I, I'm friends with that applied the first year I applied and got a place. And actually, they're going to be qualified clinical psychologists before I've actually started training. And, you know, you can kind of look at that and think, oh, you know, they were so much better than me. And 
and things like that but actually we're all kind of we're all walking our own journey here mm. there's no there's no guidebook there's no right time and actually kind of the the experiences that I've gained and learned over the last three years not in training actually can only help me in the next three years when I am in training and I think motivation is quite interesting because you've all worked very hard and keep pushing and keep going through this quite grueling process of interviews and and so on and I just wondered what your overriding motivation has has been to sustain this like career journey for me I think motivation has been loving what I'm doing anyway I think a lot of emphasis can be put on getting onto training as soon as possible. But actually, I've met people as an assistant psychologist. I've I've given one-to-one therapy to people that you can take inspiration from anybody and from anything. I've always been in a privileged position that I've loved every job that I've had. I've always felt that I've been helping people. And actually, I think, yeah, it's it's really, really important that, you know, that you have insight the, the decline if that's the way you want to go if that's where your dreams are but actually that you also don't forget about the journey along the way mm. about you can help as an assistant psychologist or in whatever role you choose to be um whatever experiences you're getting that actually it's all relevant and the most important thing is actually to just to do something that you're passionate about you know what? I wrote something really similar in my notes Danielle that your kind of pre-doctoral experiences are more than a means to an end that actually like the, the contribution that you make along the way and the, the what you pour into the the system and what you pour into in our case at the moment research like there's there will be studies that exist only because of what we've kind of contributed or had a big part in contributing to and yeah I think I totally agree with that that sense of actually you've got to love what you're doing while you're in it rather than it all just being a means to an end I think equally there's a I mean, there was a sense I'd committed quite a lot to this path. I think it would have taken me a lot to choose to get off the path um, because I came to it later. That I had to kind of fund myself through a master's later in life and things like that, that actually I'd, I'd poured a lot in, that getting onto the doctorate wasn't step one. It was kind of a step quite a far way down the path. Yeah. And Sarah? Yeah, I think I would definitely echo what Laura and Danielle have said. I think for myself, having a bit of an overinflated drive system has definitely helped with motivation and kind of keeping me on track as well as um as you guys said you know having a genuine kind of passion and interest in mental health and in creating meaningful and positive change whether that be clinically within research or kind of at a more strategic kind of service level one of the things that I've learned is that as an assistant psychologist and as a psychologist, you're told, you know, that research is important and that you're you're a scientist practitioner. But I think now I, I really kind of get it and I really value mm. it and see kind of just how fundamental, what a fundamental role research plays in everything we do as psychologists and how kind of fundamental it is in the development and the progression and improvement of kind of everything we're doing kind of for the benefit for the people for the people that we're working Mm. for yeah it seems to be almost a cycle doesn't it that actually kind of in order to improve our services we have to kind of have the research in there to actually understand what what's going on at the moment and then in that in turn also then actually improves our clinical practice so you you can't have clinical practice without research and I I think Mm. that's really 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 important and I think also something that is easily forgotten I think clinical experiences is kind of 
seen as almost the the golden nugget but actually and actually I think research positions are also even fewer and far between I think I've for however many clinical roles are available especially within kind of assistant psychology there are half the number of research roles um and I think I when I first started in research I thought it was going to be very academic very essay writing and statistics and things like that and actually within my first role I worked a lot with people with lived experience of psychosis and actually shaping the research that we were doing um, to make it more meaningful to to the people who were going to impact. So it's been surprising in some ways. Definitely. Have you got ambitions yourselves like for what you're hoping to sort of achieve post the doctorate? I mean obviously that's going to be kind of very informative in itself but are you wanting to go back to research or you wanted to, to stay in clinical or what do you want to do? If I got to like design my perfect role, and I'm sure some of them exist, I'm sure I've I've heard of some of them. It would it would be about including both of those bits that actually involves clinical and research because like as Danielle just talked, like it's a it's a process, it's it's evidence based practice and practice based evidence. It, it's a it's a cycle, and it shouldn't take like we mentioned, it shouldn't take twenty years to get research into practice. So I think if I got to design my perfect role. It would consist of both bits because I think they they are bedfellows and they have to be bedfellows. And potentially the way that our system is set up is they're potentially more separate than they could be. So I think if I got to design my perfect role, it would include both. I don't know whether that exists. I don't know whether I'm going to have to go and convince somebody to create it. But I will do that if that if I can. So I think that's that would be my dream role. I think I would agree with Laura and I think Laura those roles definitely do exist I have heard of them but they are few and far between and that's often I guess not for a want of people kind of wanting to do that but a lack of kind of resource and capacity um, and and that's something I've definitely found kind of working as an assistant psychologist and an assistant research psychologist is I've often had the luxury of time and resource whereas perhaps the qualified uh, members of staff in the team haven't had that and it's something that I've really appreciated um, and I would love to kind of yeah carry that through into a qualified position in the future. Yeah no I'm the same and I'm also really looking forward to kind of the leadership element of it. I think being an assistant psychologist that's perhaps for, for me definitely the one part that I was kind of lacking um, but as I've already mentioned you can't really kind of lead a service if you aren't entirely sure what's going on within the service. So yeah, I definitely hope that kind of research permeates throughout the career. And is there anything that you're going to sort of take away from the year or two that you've been at NSFT research? Like, is there a researcher that you, you know, you've kind of learned a lot from, or is there kind of contributors that you've taken experience from? Is there anything that comes to mind? I think for me, so I've worked in the research department for two years now, um, for one year delivering a study and then for another year developing research and actually the the biggest impact on me is actually that the experts aren't the professors from university that are kind of writing these incredible essays it, it's it's the people that are taking part the people that are kind of laying their life experiences out for you to see in order to for you to learn from them and for actually to improve things for people in the future and I think I've not only learned a lot from them, but I've been inspired a lot from them. Mm. If they're able to take what are quite difficult experiences and kind of use those to shape a better future for other people. 
Yeah, so I feel like I already kind of touched on um, a couple of the things that I would take um, from this role. But I guess one of the things that's really struck me is is I think I really underestimated the richness of working in research. And I feel like this is one of the first roles that I've had where I've been able to kind of bring my whole self to the role and be able to integrate kind of all of my experiences and, and all of my myself into what I'm doing. And I've, I've really loved it. Um, and it's also given me, um, as Danielle says, a huge appreciation for the importance of 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 co-production, but not just kind of tokenistic co-production. Um, at, like I've now got a quite a, quite an interest in participatory action research, and it's something that I'd really I feel really fits with my values and kind of who I am as a as a researcher, as an and as a as a practitioner, and it's something that I'd really like to kind of take forward. I'm going to have to ask you what participatory action research is. Yeah, so it's um, it's kind of a framework for conducting research and it kind of draws on ideas of social justice and collaboration and it's centred on the belief that those who are most impacted by research should be the ones taking the lead in all parts of the research process and it believes that research itself can be an important arena for making change. Um, so it, it moves beyond the kind of tokenistic ideas of co-production and it helps to readdress power imbalances within research and again you know it's that idea of kind of working with people rather than on them or to them and kind of taking that non-expert position within the research process that I really like. Well let's hope there's plenty more of that going on in the future. Thank you very much the three of you for sharing your news and your views on this next step in your lives and I wish you all the best with that. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please do subscribe. It's free and means the podcast will automatically download every fortnight. Do rate and review our podcast and follow our social media accounts. They're all in the show notes. And more than anything, look after yourself.